Okay, fellow students, if you would open your Bibles to 2 Timothy. We're going to start the first chapter of 2 Timothy, and I'll be starting about verse 6. Remember the pastoral epistles, 1 and 2 Timothy and Titus, were written to two young pastors, Timothy and Titus. They were in churches where there was a history of trouble, and there were a lot of current troubles. There was a large chunk of false teaching, uh, doctrinal uh, issues, uh, lack of fidelity to the scripture, and of course remember that when truth gets compromised, behavior gets stupid. Maybe that's the best way to say it. And so there was a lot of work that needed to be done. So Paul is writing these epistles, these letters, these pastoral epistles to these two young pastors to tell them how to set in order what remains. Now, let me just give you a little bit of a time frame. Paul was converted about 32 AD, 34 AD. For about 14 years, he spent time in Arabia, Damascus, uh, Tarshish, and Jerusalem, and he didn't take his first missionary journey until about 48 AD. So there was about 14 years from conversion to the point where he took off on the first missionary journey. That doesn't mean he wasn't busy working. He was busy teaching, he was studying, he was being persecuted, but he hadn't actually gone out as a missionary. So he took three missionary journeys between 48 and 57. So about nine years of those three missionary journeys and then coming back to Antioch and Jerusalem to report back to the church at large what he'd been doing. In 57, he was arrested for the first time. And uh, like our court system, he spent about four years winding his way through the Jewish and Roman court system. That doesn't mean he wasn't doing ministry at that point, but he was in interdiction and on trial and being investigated for the cause of the gospel from about 57 to 61. He was released in, uh, by the way, this was the last chapter of Acts. Remember, he was under house arrest. He was in a rented home. He was... People were coming to him everywhere. The Praetorian Guard was being um, uh, converted. So he didn't waste that arrest time. He used it for the glory of God. In 62, uh, he was released from prison. His fourth missionary journey, there was a number of uh, about four years in there where he was revisiting all the churches he had previously planted, just making sure that they were on track. He had visited Ephesus. They were in trouble, so he sent Timothy there to take care of business. This book, 2 Timothy, was written just prior to his being beheaded in AD 66. So this book is the very last will and testament of Paul. It's been said that last words are lasting words. So it's always a very, very good idea to pay, pay very close attention to the last things that people say. Generally, it can be very meaningful at that point. So Paul knows that his time of departure is very close, probably within a matter of weeks. And this is the passing of the torch, the passing of the mantle to Timothy. Paul is in his mid-60s at this point, 63, 4, 5. Timothy is about 30 years younger. So this book is the very last passing of the mantle, passing of the torch to Timothy by Paul, and that's one of the reasons why it's so significant. Timothy, as you recall is not got the same personality as Paul. Knowing what you know about the Apostle Paul, how would you describe Paul's personality? He was result-oriented. He was task-oriented. Would you, would, you, would you call him fearful? No, he was courageous, pretty... Forceful. Forceful, bold. Pardon? Stern. Yeah, okay, good. Passionate. How would you describe Timothy? Younger. Yes, good. 35. That's yeah, that's really young. That's really, I'm with you. Okay. Probably more timid, probably less courageous, probably didn't want confrontation, probably more intimidated, probably less experienced. I think that's very good. So the theme of this is in chapter 1, go to 2 Timothy 1, verse, verse 8. The theme of this is do not be ashamed. Do not be ashamed. Do not be ashamed. Three times. In other words, he's exhorting Timothy, be bold to preach the gospel. Be bold to stand for Christ. Now, the truth of it is, all of us at one time or another have tended to be intimidated, right, by the world and from friends, 
from speaking out boldly for the cause of Christ. That's part of human nature. The classic example of that in Scripture would be the Apostle Peter. What did Peter do? Peter, Mr. Big Mouth, I will die with you, right? As long as he's with his buds, right? As long as he's with his 12 apostle friends, he's large and in charge and I'm going to do it. But you put him after the betrayal, when Jesus is already captured on trial, surrounded by a Roman cohort, and he says three times, I don't even know him. I've never seen him before, right? Couldn't pick him out of a police lineup, right? A little girl intimidates him and says that at that point. By the way, Peter is very, very good for us. Because what happened to Peter post-denial? He was restored to service. And when you see Peter in the first 12 chapters of Acts, he's a rock. He's living up to the promise that God told him, Jesus told him, I will make you a rock and you will be the leader of the 12. And in fact, he fulfilled that prophecy by God. So there's hope. There's hope. Now, not being ashamed is mentioned by Jesus multiple times in some very interesting context. Matthew 10, verse 32 to 33 says, If you are ashamed to confess Jesus before men, then he will be ashamed to confess you before his Father. Wow. Which means if you habitually and repeatedly and and routinely do not want to be associated with him, you better check out and find out if you belong to him. Be a good, good diagnostic test. What I'm fascinated with is that in Hebrews 2.12, it says that Jesus is not ashamed to call us, you and me sinners, he's not ashamed to call us his brothers, his family. We are sinners, and he's not ashamed to hang out with us. Whoa, that's pretty good, huh? Holy God says, you sinners, you're my people. I'm okay hanging out with you. So why would be ashamed of him? I mean, he's got a lot more to lose from associating with us, right? I mean, we, we you know, what's that song? Marin, you give love a bad name. What, what's, who, are, who? You know, uh, Austin, who, who wrote it? Anyway, sometimes our behavior, it was one of favorite Caleb's favorite songs, You Give Love a Bad Name. He had swinged to that thing. The point is, we give God a bad name many times by our behavior, and yet in his mercy, he says, I'm not ashamed of you. I'm not ashamed to call you brothers and sisters and family. So why would we be ashamed of him? Because we care more about other people's opinion than we do God's opinion. All right. We're going to talk today about spiritual courage. And the issue is do not be ashamed is another way of saying be bold, be courageous. And you'll see some notes on the board. Courage comes from a number of things. If you want to live a bold, unashamed life, go to verse 6. First thing courage comes from is reviewing and renewing your spiritual job description. Verse 6. Actually, go up to verse 5. Paul tells Timothy that his faith is genuine and his mother's faith is genuine and his grandmother's faith is genuine. So he's really, really, really a Christian, belongs to Jesus. He's got genuine faith. And based on that, he needs to do something in verse 6. He says, For this reason, because your faith is genuine, I remind you, Timothy to kindle afresh the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of hands. Kindle afresh. That means it's almost... Have you ever had a fireplace? And you let the fireplace die down, and there's a few coals, and there's no heat, and there's no flame, but there's still a few embers. What do you do if you want the thing to put out heat? You've got to stir it up, right? You've got to get some oxygen on it. You've got to move those coals around. You've got to dump some fuel on it, some more wood or whatever it happens to be that you're burning at that point. Timothy is under severe opposition. He's got a very, very problematic leadership, most of whom are doctrinally compromised, most of whom are not preaching the gospel, most of whom have pretty serious sin in their life, and he's getting hammered by this church. He's trying to 
straighten them up, if you will, biblically, and they don't want to hear it at that point in time. So he's cooling off. He's getting tired of getting beat up. Have you ever been tired of getting spiritually beat up when you stand for Christ? You just get tired. What's the tendency when you're tired to do? Back off, slow down, you know, just, you know, cool it. I don't want to get in any more spiritual opposition that's wearing me down at that point in time. Paul says, Timothy, stir that flame up. Don't let the fireplace go cold. Now, he says, kindle afresh, stir up what? What's the next word? The gift of God. What's that mean? You all have spiritual gifts, right? Because you have the Holy Spirit living in you. Say yes. Now, the source of the spiritual gift is God. The location of the spiritual gift is in you. You have the Holy Spirit in you. You have spiritual gifts in you. And every and every one of you in this room have spiritual gift. Now, the word gift is charisma, which is Greek for grace gift. It comes from the Holy Spirit and is designed specifically for you. So I want you to picture God as the master artist. <clears throat> he has a palette of gifts, abilities, passions, and he created you uniquely. There's not another person with your DNA in the world. And spiritually, he mixes those gifts and temperaments and characters and temper and whatever he wants to do, and he creates you. Correct? Uniquely, one of a kind in the body of Christ. You know what else he creates? He creates work for you to do equally uniquely designed for your gifts. Do you understand that? He's not just created you and said, I hope you find something to do in my body. Keep yourself useful. He's got a specific set of slots and job descriptions for you to do. The question is, do you know your spiritual job description? And even more imperative, are you doing it? Are you doing it? 1 Corinthians 12 and Romans 12 says, every believer gets at least one gift, at least one, many multiples. What are you supposed to do with that gift? Since you have been given the gift, the word is employ it, which means put it to work. Yes? Put it to work. And we will be held accountable for the spiritual productivity that comes from that gift. John 15 calls that fruit bearing. Right? Do you want to have a tree? Do you want to have a life that bears a lot of spiritual fruit? Or at the end of your life, do you want to look at the tree and go, not much fruit on that tree after 70 years. Wow, is that what you want? So he says, stir up the gift, folks. All right, let's get practical. How many of you know what your spiritual gift is or a reasonable facsimile thereof? All right. How many of you are using that gift right now and serving Jesus somewhere in the body of Christ? Let's see some hands. Don't, don't get shy on me. If you're doing it, do it. All right. If you're not using your gifts, you're doing two things. Number one, the body of Christ is hurting because you're not. The body of Christ needs you because there's a vacuum in it where God has designed you to work. Okay? There's holes in the body of Christ, and you need to be working where he's called you. Number two, if you're not serving, you are losing out on joy. Unbelievable. I'll never forget Rick Gore used to, every week, this is 10 years ago, Nancy, he used to say, oh God, he'd pray for us, you know, which was good. And he would say, uh, Brad just goes to all this trouble to do this studying. And I'm going, it's not trouble to study. It's joy. It's addiction. It's wonderful. Is it work? It's work. But Faye is smiling because once you understand that this is God talking to you, it's unbelievable that God reveals his mind. He tells us about himself written down and you can read it. And understand what God has to say to you. It is amazing. It is amazing. So if you're not serving, number one, I want you to feel guilty. (laughs) Guilty. (laughs) Guilty, right? And number two, I want you to really sit down with the Lord and do some, have a little honest conversation. Make yourself available. 
Make yourself available. You're missing out on joy beyond your comprehension. I'm serious. There is joy in coming to class. There's joy in coming to church. But spectating is not a spiritual gift. It's not listed, right? Coming and sitting, that's my gift, man. You know, That's what you do at the dinner table. All right, let's move on. Verse 7. You kindle afresh the gift. Review and renew your job description. Verse 7 says, Why would you do that? Because God has not given us a spirit of timidity or fear, but he's given us a spirit of power and love and discipline. So the second principle is courage comes from using your God-given resources. God not only gives you a gift and a spiritual job description, he gives you resources to use to make those gifts operable at that point. Now, what can, what can dampen that gift? Well, timidity, fear, is one thing that can cause you not to use the gift. If you've got a spiritual set of gifts and you're not using them, in Timothy's case, one of the things that was kind of putting the brakes on in his life was fear. Cowardice, timidity, shame, weakness, embarrassment. Do any of those things come from God? God does not give you a spirit of fear. God gives you three things, right? What are they? Power, love, and discipline. So if God gives you the skill and ability, he's also going to give you the power and love and discipline. Now note, note the tense. Does God have yet to do this or has he already done it? So you already have the power and love and discipline. Yes? Say yes. Here's the point. Here's the picture. Yeah, some of you are say yes to what? I want, I, want, I want you to visualize a bank account. God has this giant resource bank account, right? It's filled with power, love, and discipline, fruit of the Spirit, Holy Spirit, whatever else you want, right? And he's given you the checkbook or the debit card, right? Because God doesn't need any credit, right? The bank, his bank covers everything. So he's got this huge resource bank. And he says, everything you need is available in my bank. And it's unlimited, now here's the question. Some of you aren't writing any checks on the account. Right? You've got the Hughes Resource Bank. You know why? Because your fire is gold. You know, you need a little gasoline on the fire. Write a few checks. That's what he gave you the resources for. So he wants us to be actively involved. Now power, Acts 1.8 says... You shall receive power when? When do you get the power? When the Holy Spirit has come upon you. If you know Jesus, and I presume most of you do, then you have the Holy Spirit living in you now. Which means you have the power now. Some of us don't need the power. Because we ain't doing anything that requires it. Right? I mean, your cars are all in the parking lot now, right? And they've got power under the hood, yes? But the power right now is not necessary because it's not being driven. But when you leave here in a while and you want to go home and you turn the key, you expect that power to be available to move you from point A to point B. Until you get in the car and turn the key on, the power is available, but it's not being used. You know where I'm going with this. Yeah. Have you fired the car up? Let's. Are we going someplace here, right? So the power is available. That word, by the way, power is dunamis. It means dynamite. It's where we get the word dynamic, dynamo. So God's dynamite. All that power is available to you. And you'll need it because when you're doing the king's work, you're operating in the realm of the supernatural, not the realm of the natural. See, one of the reasons we get afraid to use our spiritual gift is we go, I'm not capable of doing this. And God says, duh, right? This is news. Of course you're not capable. That's why I gave you supernatural resources so that you could be capable, be available. Okay, the second piece that you need, he's given you power. The second one is love, Romans 5, 5 says love hope does not disappoint because the love of god has been poured out within our hearts through the holy spirit who has given us you have the holy spirit yes. say yes. yes you have the love then now question 
Is love stronger than fear? So if you are controlled by fear, how much love is in your life? Not enough. Not enough. Well said. Perfect love casts out fear. Let me give you a word picture. You love your child or your grandchild. Your child or your grandchild is in mortal danger. They've wandered into the streets or they've fallen in a pool or a creek or a river. If you love them, will you care how well you can swim? Will you care that there's a semi coming? Will you care about yourself? You won't care. If your grandchild or child is in danger, love casts out the fear you will do whatever you need to do to save the one you love. That's what he's talking about. If we're filled with God's love, then we're not worried about ourselves and our precious thin skin and somebody might not like us. Right? Fear and pain cannot Correct. So if there is fear, what can we say about faith? <clears throat> we don't have it. It's not, it's not in our life at that point. How many of you were at the first service? Did that knock your block off? Yeah. I'm telling you, you got to go to 11 o'clock. Wonderful. Okay, the third, the third resource that God gives us is discipline. Galatians 5.22. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness. And the last one is the one of the biggies, self-control. You know, where, is self-control tough? I can see some of you saying, I wouldn't know. I've never tried it. <laughs> I can resist anything but temptation, you know, as the old line says at that point. Self-control in the face of pain is one thing. You know where it's much harder? Self-control in the face of praise. That's much more difficult because we really think we deserve it. That can be very dangerous, very dangerous. Craving the praise of men is harder to discipline the fear of pain. So what, what the discipline is, is God gives you the Holy Spirit who, who then brings the fruit of self-control in your life that allows you to prioritize what's important. How many of you have more choices than time? How many of you have more choices than cash? Now we're getting down to it. <laughs> there, yeah, yeah. So when you go shopping, you have to choose, right? To say no to more things than you say yes to. Although sometimes you see people walking out of the Bloomingdale's with the bags, you think they said yes to more things than they said no to. <laughs> I had a, uh, I had a woman I know. Yeah, this is a, this is convicting, isn't it? I had a woman I know who's. <laughs> Don, that sounds like a personal issue, but... Okay. Okay, Walmart's fine. None of that counts. You know where it really is difficult? QVC. Because nobody can see you. I kid you not, I had a woman who had two bedrooms filled with stuff she had bought from QVC, none of which were opened. Now that means you like the shopping experience. You don't like the opening and enjoying experience she just had a high need to buy you know she got the little emotional hit every time she bought so that would not be a, a recommended course of action just in case rob you're thinking about qvc you know just just the thought so self-control is essential and what self-control really does it allows you to use all of life's circumstances for spiritual good whether it's pain or praise if you have self-control it doesn't matter what comes at you God will give you the ability to use that for his glory at that point. Okay, yes? Sometimes that self-control needs to be exhibited by not going there at all. Yeah, yeah. Because... Don't go where you're going to be tempted. Well, yeah, you could, there's not a store you can walk into that you don't want something. So if you don't have it, you don't go. Yeah, yeah. So that retail therapy stuff, that's an oxymoron then, isn't it? <laughs> now nah, I'm messing with you, I'm telling you. Okay. All right. Go on to verse 8. So he says, verse 6, kindle a gift, review and renew your job description. Verse 7, you've got the resources, start writing some checks on God's account. You've got the power and love and discipline. You have to turn the key on and get rolling. 
because of that, verse 8, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me as prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God. Courage comes from anticipating your suffering. Anticipating your suffering, it's normal. And Paul says, join with me. The community of sufferers, the community of believers, life together. Suffering for the gospel is normal or abnormal? Normal. Most of history, most Christians have been persecuted. Don't get surprised. Chapter 3, verse 12, Paul writes, he says, All that live godly will be persecuted. Your favorite word. I know you didn't want to hear this. Okay? Now, he's not talking about suffering for your own sin. That's just plain stupid, right? It's forgiven, but it's stupid, right, as a consequence. He's talking about suffering for the gospel, suffering for doing what's right at that point in time. And I've talked to people who go, well, I don't get persecuted, never been persecuted. Many in this country haven't. Um, one of the ways you can avoid persecution, of course, is dilute the truth. Tell people that their own best self really is just fine, they don't need to make any changes. God exists to give you what you want and to make you more of yourself. Boy, that's pitiful, isn't it? But at any rate, uh, when you tell people that all have sinned and fall short, you're choosing to go to hell apart from Jesus Christ if you don't accept his salvation and his ransom, those kinds of things prick people's pride, and they don't want to hear it. That's just reality. They don't want to hear it. And yet it's a tremendous act of love to tell people the truth regardless of how they respond. Definition of evangelism is sharing the gospel, the power of the Holy Spirit, and leaving the results up to God. Because we're not in charge. All you can do is proclaim the truth and live the truth to start with at that point in time. I'm fascinated that in Acts 5.21, it said the apostles rejoiced that they were counted worthy to suffer. Acts 5.41. How could it be that they would rejoice that they were counted worthy to suffer? See, our brain doesn't think that way, does it? Have you ever wrapped your mind around that? Who suffered the most for the sins of the world? So if you proclaim the truth and you suffer, you are like him. You are being treated like him. They'd really like to beat on Jesus, but he's not here. He's at the right hand of the Father, so you are his representative. Now, you're just the water carrier, I know. But when you carry the truth faithfully, there's going to be some that respond, and there's going to be some that oppose. It's what it is. Right? So the apostles said, we're in really, really good company. If we suffered for the cause of the truth, and Jesus did, we're now like him. Now, Honestly, what kind of suffering do we get into in the United States? How would you define suffering for the gospel here? Ostracism. What else? Some job impacts from not being part of a group that did things I wouldn't do. Okay. So there's some rejection, right? You might not be on the in crowd. Right, the social, the social in-group, etc., etc. I'm fascinated here. <clears throat> if you look at verse 8, it says that Paul's a prisoner. Yes? Who's he a prisoner of at this point? He's a prisoner of who? He's a prisoner of the Lord. He's not a prisoner of Rome. He's not a prisoner of the Jews. He's a prisoner of... Jesus. What does that mean to be a prisoner of Jesus? Now, if you're a prisoner, someone else is in total control of your destiny. Yes? If you're a prisoner of Jesus, who's totally in control of your destiny? So the question is, who am I a prisoner of now? And don't go telling me, nobody. If you're a prisoner of self, that's the worst bondage in the world because you are a terrible master. It's true. You ever try and manage yourself? Some of you guys, I mean, it's pretty clear. You need some help. 
right? <laughs> we all need help, especially the one talking to you. He's the biggest mess he's got, okay? The, the point is, Paul is a prisoner of Christ. God happens to be using Rome to accomplish his purpose for the Jewish nation. If you're a prisoner of Jesus, you know something? Everything that happens to you is not your problem. It's God's problem, right? He's the one who bought and paid for you at Calvary, right? Amen. Now, is he a pretty good master? Yeah. yeah, much better than us. Much better than us. So I, I encourage you, paradoxically, if you're not a prisoner of Jesus, who are you a prisoner of? Because you will serve somebody. Bob Dylan told me, God has served somebody, right? Yeah. It's true. It's very, very, very true. So here's an interesting question. How is the fear of rejection holding me back? How is the fear of rejection holding me back? Just thought about it. Now, suffering is something we don't like to think about. If you anticipate it, it won't bother you so much. You'll, you'll expect it. You'll say that's normal. It's normal. I'm in good company. So when it happens, it won't blow you out of the water and you won't say, this shouldn't be happening to me. Yeah, it should be happening to you. That's okay. All right, verse 9. Because Paul's a prisoner of Christ, he says to Timothy, join in suffering with me now, the power of the gospel. As a matter of fact, that's probably pretty good company because it shows you're doing something that matters for Jesus' sake. Verse 9. According to the power of God who has saved us, this is what God has done for us, he saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, thank God, our works stink, but according to his own purpose and grace which was granted to us in Jesus Christ from all eternity. This principle is courage comes from remembering God's eternal purpose in calling you. So the power of God is revealed by his saving you from sin and death and Satan. The word save here means to rescue from danger. So you've been called, saved from what? Saved from what? Sin, death, hell, Satan, right? Pretty good thing to be saved from. And what are you called to? What does verse 9 say you're called to? Called to holy living. Called to holy living. Did you have anything to do with that? Your works, your good deeds, your brownie points, your boy scouts, your gold stars? No. Nope. Nothing. Who's, who's, whose work is it? His work. Salvation was his idea. How long has this plan been in the works? Before time, before space, from all eternity. Has it ever interested you that salvation is not plan B? That God said, well, I got plan A, and plan A is that they'll behave in Eden. Adam and Eve will obey me in Eden. That's plan A. But just in case they don't, I got a contingency plan called the sun will go to the cross just in case Adam and Eve screw up. Is that what it's about? No, 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 no. Salvation was from eternity past. Eternity past. From before the foundations of the world. Do you think Adam and Eve's sin surprised God? Does your sin surprise him? Does your sin disappoint him? No. In order to be disappointed, you have to be surprised. God doesn't say, Oh, I'm, I, 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 I never thought Brad would do that. I think he's still disappointed. Say it louder, Holly. It does grieve him. It doesn't surprise him. It does break his heart. It doesn't surprise him. Salvation's not plan B. Salvation's eternity past. Here's the point. When you remember that God has an eternal purpose in calling you, and suffering may be part of that purpose, and the resources of the Holy Spirit is part of that purpose, and that He's created a job description for you to do in His body from eternity past, then what you're doing here, all of a sudden you have perspective on. You have eternal perspective on. And you're saying, God is not making this up as He goes right this plan is an eternal plan and you know something it's happening right on divine schedule and that's not something you read in the newspaper or on the internet when you read on the internet or you're surfing or whatever you're doing or on the iphone or you actually read paper called the newspaper and you read all the stuff that's going on in the world you know something 
God's plan is happening right on schedule. Exactly, exactly, exactly on schedule. You don't read about it in the newspaper because unregenerate man doesn't pay attention to God's plan. But you and I should know what his plan is. He's written it down. And you can read it. And I assure you that nothing occurs that's not part of God's plan or his allowance. Okay? All right, verse 11. For which, I'm going to read verse 10 and 11, but now has been revealed by the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ who abolished death. Thank God for that. Abolished death. Man, we can live forever. And brought life and immortality, that's living forever, to life through the gospel. For which I was appointed three things. What are they? Preacher, an apostle, and a teacher. Courage comes from doing your duty. Duty done is rejoicing. Duty undone is regret. You and I are alive today for only one reason. You have work yet to do. If you didn't have work yet to do, you would not be here. Your eternal home is already built for you, waiting for you, right? But you're not ready for it yet because you have work to do here yet. That's why you're here. You have God-given duties to complete. The question is, are you doing your duty or are you just taking up space? If you're not doing what he designed you to do, you're taking up space. I'm telling you, that means you should get on with doing your duty. Your duty is what? Employing the spiritual gift that God gave you in serving his body. And I know I'm, I'm hammering this because I'm utterly convinced that the Lord says, I've given you all the resources of eternity. I've given you my very self. The Holy Spirit, the third member of the Trinity, lives in you. We should be turning the world upside down, and some people can't even get out of bed by 9 o'clock on Sunday morning. That shouldn't take a lot of spiritual juice, right? You would think. Okay? So there's no retirement from ministry. One of my favorite verses in Scripture is the middle of Joshua. And it says that Joshua left nothing undone of all that the Lord had commanded Moses' his servant. You could put that on my gravestone. It's pretty good. If they could say about you, you left nothing undone of all that God commanded you to do. Boy, that's pretty good. That's pretty good. Jesus said in John 17, Father, I glorified you on earth because I finished the work that you gave me to do. The question is, do you know the work that he gave you to do? And if you have children, I'm telling you, you got a full-time job description to disciple your children. And if you have grandchildren, it's even harder because you can't go meddling. Your job is probably prayer and encouragement and more prayer and encouragement. <laughs> and more, Ben, less talk and more prayer. <laughs> anyway, because you know what the kids ought to be doing, right? I mean, you've got all the scar tissue from not doing it, right, yourself. So interesting at that point. Paul knew his job description, and Timothy's was too. Preach, apostle, teacher. Preaching is not a, a spiritual gift, but it is a task to herald the message. An apostle is one sent with delegated authority, and a teacher is one community content. And all of us have a responsibility to carry the gospel. So the question here would be, what is God telling me to do that I am currently neglecting or procrastinating? Write it down. This is a good one. They're all good. Some of you have been writing down. Some of you don't even bring pencils to class. What is God telling me to do that I am currently neglecting or procrastinating? And don't tell me nothing. Come on. Come on, come on, come on. No, it's not that bad either. I, you know something? I really do love you guys. I, I got to say, man is some of my favorite people on the planet. I'd rather hang with you than anybody else. Many of you are really getting on with it. I'm telling you, many of you in this class are in high gear. And I look at you and I'm going, Jesus, keep me, keep, keep me pedaling like they're pedaling. 
What is God telling me to do that I'm currently procrastinating or neglecting? Verse 12. For this reason, I also suffer these things, but I am not ashamed. Second time. For I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. Here's the principle. Courage comes from knowing Christ, not from knowing a creed. Not what I know, but whom I know. It doesn't say, I know what I have believed. It says, I know whom I have believed. Christianity is all about Jesus, folks. It's about relationships. It's not about a book with a bunch of stuff written in it. This book reveals the Son to us at that point. What will sustain you in suffering is not knowledge, it's relationship. What will sustain you in suffering is not just knowledge, it's relationship and fellowship. And you know that your convictions have staying power when they stand up under pressure like you found out this morning with Abraham. And it says, it's interesting, I know whom, and I am convinced that, what's the next three words? I am convinced that he is able. Underline that. Some of you are going to run into stuff this week. You're going to say, man, God, I'm glad you're able. Because I'm not. This is a situation I can't control. Whatever you run into this week, underline that with those three words. He is able. There's nothing in your world that's going to happen the next 167 hours between now and next week that he can't deal with. Nothing. What Paul says here, God is able and willing. There is nothing too difficult for him. And he is able to do what? He's able to guard my deposit. Guard what I have entrusted. What have you entrusted to Jesus? Ultimately. Your soul. Your eternal soul. You've entrusted... I've entrusted Brad Hannington for how long? Forever. That's all you've got is you. Right? You're saying, Lord, I entrust me to you forever. And I know you're able to protect that deposit. I know that you're able to take care of me. I know that you will take care of me because that's who you are, right? So Jesus is the only one you can safely abandon yourself to. And for a control freak like me, abandon is a very terrifying word. I don't abandon anything. I am tenacious. I'm a, ask Merit. How she lives with me, I don't know. <laughs> But Jesus, you can abandon yourself to. How long? Until that day. That day is the day of rewards. That day is the judgment seat of Christ when he says to you, well done. Well done. And it's interesting. In verse 13, you're entrusting your life to God forever. And it, I mean in verse 12. And in verse 13, he's entrusting his priceless word to you. Read verse 13 and 14. Retain the standard of sound words which you have heard from me and the faith and love which were in Christ Jesus. Guard through the Holy Spirit who dwells in us the treasure underline that, the treasure which has been entrusted to you. Wow. The principle is courage comes from firmly grasping God's truth as priceless treasure. So in verse 12 you entrusted your life to God in verse 13, he's entrusted his treasure to you. You know what the treasure is? You got it in your laps. The word of God. The word of God. You are a steward of the gospel. So, interesting question. How much do I really value God's word? How would you tell what you value? How much time do you spend with the treasure? I read somewhere the other day that the average male, this is pretty sad, father, the amount of time they spend one-to-one -one with their children, it's pretty pathetic. Less than 10 minutes a day. Per day. And if you ask the guy, do you treasure your children? Oh, yes, I treasure my children. But he worships the remote or the iPad or whatever. You know, you can always tell what you treasure by what you spend your time doing. Right? Say yes. yes. Come on. You got the deer in the headlight look on me now. 
question is, do we view his word as treasure? And what does he say here? It's interesting. He says retain. You know what that means? Grab firmly like a sword. Grasp firmly. Hold firmly. And he says, Grant, hold what? The standard of sound words. The standard means the structure, the outline. It's a word for an architect's blueprint, right? So you're going to grab firmly the truth of sound words. That means literally biblical truth, but healthy words in the faith and love which are in Jesus Christ. So the manner in which you protect and proclaim the gospel is faith in God and love for others. I mean, I've had people hold to the truth, but man, they beat me up with it. Is that what I'm doing to you today? <laughs> but, uh, yeah, <laughs> that's good. But do you know I love you? At the end of the day, that's what counts. I mean, you can tell me all the truth in the world, but if I know you love me, I'll never forget Marin and I were dating, and she said, this is like our third date. She said, Brad, you have doggy breath. And I'm like, man, I hope this woman likes me because that was hard to hear. But it's truth, right? We can accept the truth if we know someone loves us. So when the Lord tells us the truth through his word, do we know he loves us? Yeah, the cross pretty well took care of that proof of love at that point in time. So if you treasure the truth, then number one, don't dilute it with the sugary poison of compromise. Truth will never conform to our sin. Truth is always the standard by which we have to measure up to. And the problem is we don't want to change, so we tend to want to, not you, not manna. Manna doesn't do that. You know, I tell people, drink the truth straight up. Straight up. You don't water it down. You don't add stuff to it. Full strength prescription heals. Diluted truth like diluted medicine can get you dead. Is that true? If you're taking medicine, you need to take the whole thing? Yes? Yeah. Al, you're my man. That's right. Tell him, brother. Okay, right? So full strength. Now, here's the principle. Truth can heal, but first it hurts. Truth can heal, but first it hurts. You know, um, I love you guys because you desire the truth. And every week we come and we get exposed to truth, right? And it generally pricks us a little bit. Marty last week said, Brad, I'm limping out of here. Thanks a lot. <laughs> and I said, Marty, I limp in here every week. I limp in here because of what the truth has done to me that week. But that's God holding the straight edge up of truth, and we are to conform to it, right? We are to adjust our lives to truth. We don't change truth to fit us. And so when we come here, we're saying, Lord, what do you want to say to us, and how do I need to make adjustments in my life to this truth right that's what we want to do okay verse 15 the principle in verse 15 is courage comes from hanging with people who are headed toward jesus you are aware of the fact that all who are in asia turned away from me among whom are phrygellus and hermogenes that sounds like names for twins right phrygellus and hermogenes whoa Verse 16, the Lord grant mercy to the house of Anisiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. Paul's in prison now, remember. But when he was in Rome, he eagerly searched for me and found me. The Lord grant to him to find mercy from the Lord on that day. And you know very well the services he rendered in Anisiphorus. So we've got here the friends in the flakes. And Paul wrote them down by name forever how would you like to be hermogenes and fragilis slap your parents for naming you that stuff but your name is written down in the hall of shame it says you're a flake right pressure showed up you split whoa saints have been reading your name for two thousand years in the hall of shame is that how you want to be remembered pay attention Onesiphorus is in the hall of shame. Paul's in Hall of Fame, rather. He, Paul's in prison. Onesiphorus seeks him out in the manner time prison in the dungeon and ministers to him multiple times. He's not afraid to be arrested or even executed because that's what was possible that happened at that point. Here's an interesting question How will people describe you after you're gone? 
How about three adjectives they'll use to describe you after they're gone? Hopefully, flaky will not be one of them. Right? Hopefully, courage comes from convictions, but courage is reinforced by committed company. So you're hanging out with committed people who will keep you sharp, keep you on task. You need to hang out with committed company. Scripture says the threefold cord is not quickly broken. Proverbs, you know, law of association. The other interesting thing here is some people will abandon you. You ever been abandoned? Been rejected? Yes. Duh, Brad. Count on it. Even Jesus had a Judas that the scripture might be fulfilled. So you're going to have some people that are going to flake. That's life. Okay. First principle, we're going to wind up here. Courage comes from reviewing and renewing your spiritual job description. So the question is, do I know what God's called me to do? If you don't, you know what to do about it. Get working. Verse 7. Courage comes from using your God-given resources. The question is, how many checks am I writing on God's bank account? They won't bounce, trust me. Courage comes from anticipating your suffering. It's normal. Question, how is fear of rejection holding me back? Courage comes from remembering God's eternal purpose in calling me. What is God's perspective on my service? You want to know his perspective. Well done, good and faithful servant. Do your duty. Duty done is rejoicing. Duty done is regret. What is God telling me to do that I'm currently neglecting or procrastinating? Or going, God, yeah, 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 I can't hear you. (laughs) Courage comes from knowing Christ, not from knowing a creed. Here's the question. How well do I know Jesus? Am I content with my current level of knowledge? Then your behavior should show that. Press on to know the Lord. Courage comes from firmly grasping God's truth as priceless treasure. How much do I value God's word and does my behavior reflect that? And lastly, courage comes from hanging out with people who are headed toward Jesus. How are my close friends encouraging my walk with Jesus? Another interesting question, how am I encouraging my close friends walk with Jesus? Right? One of the reasons I treasure you guys and gals so much is because every week you're here. Every week you want to be fed. Every week we want to come to the truth and say, Lord, what do you have for us this week? And you need to know that when I teach, I am the most under conviction. I am the most under conviction because I've had six days for the Lord to say, Brad, here's what you need to change in your life before you can open your mouth to manna and not be a hypocrite. So thank you for loving the truth.